now we don't have any value. Hello, Langdon. Hello, Eden. How are you doing? Well, I uh, my lungs are doing quite poor today due to the uh, uh, long-term mold damage that I took in a bad apartment years ago. Um, so it's hard to breathe and I'm vomiting up clear foam sometimes. But that aside, quite well. How about you? I, I just want to tell the listener that you might be inclined to think that was a bit because... It's Langdon, but that's not it. <clears throat> no, no, that one's uh, real. That one's real. That happened yeah. to me. I'm weaker now due to mold poisoning. Yeah. Langdon has been colonized. That's right. Um, which is never a nice process. I am doing okay. I have not been colonized. Well, more than the, you know, the regular human has also been colonized. That's right. Um, but no, no more than the usual biological colonization levels for a human. Um as you know, I am moving to the United States very soon, so that's ramping up. Uh, yeah, I'm having fun interacting with people like landlords and border police. It's um, it's a it's a thrilling process that we simply love to experience. Yes, I like when people's the the jobs that I speak to are capitalized. That's always a good sign. That's right. When they have capital letters. Um, It's got me thinking about a lot of things. And the novel that we are about to discuss has got me thinking about a lot of things because it's that kind of novel. But I wanted to open our discussion today. I went back and listened to our um, episode where I ranted about Tor.com and identity politics um, infiltrating science fiction marketing. And I made the point there about the world as a supermarket where the logic of capital, uh, you know, orders and organizes things so they can be better browsed and shopped for. That's right. And as I was doing it, you know, I don't often listen back to our episode, but I think it's a good practice, right, to listen to the stuff that you say when you're not saying them and kind of figure out what you could have said differently or better. Um, but while Classic I do that... Classic rhetorical I, I, practice. Yes. Um, I, I suspect you might sit completely still in a dark room and do nothing else than listen to our voices. I think that's a you thing to do. That's very true, yeah. Yeah. In your... In your chrysalis right um yeah i get damp in my cave yeah and inside your biological cave yeah um so i don't do that i do like i need to fidget or do something else with my hands and my eyes otherwise i lose patience and what i did was organize my list of like books i want to read and i have this very extensive like notion database where i rank books on priority so i know what i want to read next and as i was doing it i was like wait <laughs> i'm doing a supermarket to my own head um i'm, I'm doing a, <clears throat> a categorization process to my own reading habits and that got me thinking we've spoken a bit on that episode about goodreads and all that kind of stuff and whenever i rant about goodreads um people recommend me alternatives 
that are not <laughs> owned owned by Amazon. And I'm like, thank you. That's definitely better, right? It, it, it's better to use these tools, but the the basic problem remains, right? Which is increasingly all of our habits, including those which quote unquote do not generate any value, are becoming ordered and measurable. And that is well complicated. Right? And I think yeah. it's complicated in an interesting way because it is a leftist's disease. <laughs> Right? Or at least there is a correlation between holding leftist politics and being part of the social groups that would do or, or actually do things like this. Um, do you keep lists, Langdon? How does that work for you? So I used to. I used to be very big on, uh, and I can, I can sense his name at the tip of my tongue right now, I can sense that it's going to come. Um, I oh. used to keep lists because um, I've been big into the art world since basically I can remember. I was very, very lucky to grow up with a set of parents who their rule was if I could reach the book on the shelf or if I could reach the yeah. film on the uh, the film shelf, then I could, I could watch it or I could read it. But there was sort of the quiet... <clears throat> requirement that if I ran into something I didn't understand, I would talk to them about it. And so I, and looking back, I'm tremendously lucky to have had that kind of environment. Like a lot of people don't. Um, and so, you know, I've been into art for a very, very long time. Um, and so I used to do that kind of thing to basically like keep track of, you know, extracurricular activities. Like, am I working through my games list the way that I want to? Am I working through books you know should a book be bumped up or bumped down um going through films um out on top uh the fact that i very clearly um have had autism my entire life and just didn't get diagnosed till i was an adult and you you had the completionist urge there where it's like you can't yeah. get into you can't get into a record you get into a band and you're memorizing the entire track list of every album what's the release dates what's i need to hear all of them i need to um lots and lots of little things like that 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 owed it it aided my life quite a bit to have a bunch of those lists and then then something in me uh broke a number of years ago and i deliberately got rid of all of them um because at a certain point it felt these things that i loved these things that gave great meaning to my life um because like the marxist in me is very proud of my labor but labor is only one way to measure uh, a human's value. It is a real way, but it is only one way. And there's plenty of other ways. Um, and, you know, art and the experience, the sort of romanticized experience of art has always been this like deeply meaningful thing to me. And the minute it became this, um, this treadmill, this feeling of like, I'm in a cage and the cage is an infinitely long hallway and I can't get yeah. out. Then I was like, oh, this this doesn't now I don't feel anything when I'm reading a book. All I'm thinking is I'm going to be able to put this one down and start on the next one. Same with records, where it's like I was putting them on this one. I know that we both feel a lot because we both listen to a hell of a lot of music, partly for love, but also partly because we're music critics. 
And there are times when I'll realize I'm listening like a music critic and not like someone who gives a shit about music that then I am like, I have to take a break. Um, Cause then I realize I'm not really actually listening to anything. I'm, I'm taking notes, but I don't, yeah. it's not, it's not like when I look out the window and I see, you know, a slightly foggy day, I don't hear that record in my head the way that I do music that I've listened to because I give a shit about it. And yeah, so I I've, think... I've, I've had to embrace that very Deleuzian approach. There it was. Um, <laughs> deliberately striking away. I mean, this is one of the practical lived elements of, of some of that stuff of striking out um, that very teleological approach to life where it's like, I'm creating a fine ordered machine and I'm executing that um, to, to instead sort of like, I also had to give myself license to put a book down before I finished it and pick up another one. Um, or sometimes so important again. And it's yeah. like, it's not even out of lack of love. It's sometimes just like, no, I have this thing in my gut that says, read that one right now. And it's not about liking or disliking the other book. It's just, you know. Yeah. So you said a lot of things. I think the music connection is very important. Um, one of the, I don't remember the actual phrasing, but one of the things that will say that has the most echoed in my mind is um, Doug, Doug Moore of Piron and many other great bands like Seputus and, and other bands. He also was a very veteran writer for Invisible Oranges. Incredible um, writer, by the way. He's incredible. hell of a mind. I really love basically anything yeah. that he puts his uh, pen to. Yeah, for sure. And uh, a few years ago, he retired from metal music journalism, and he wrote this post about how he can't wait to go back to listening to albums just as a fan, right, without any sort of critic's perspective on it. And, you know, I remember when I was starting to get heavily into my own taste in music and developing it, there was like a local CD store where I would go and order CDs and uh, part of it, which I'll get to in a second, was also the amount that was on offer because I had to order them, right? Remember, this is Israel, right? Like, we don't have the same... It's a minor market. So a lot of things don't get here unless you order them yourself and then you have to wait a long time. So like when Devin released um, Ghost and Deconstructed, I had to find out that they were released, go to the CD store and put it in order, put it in order and then wait a month to get the CDs but then I would listen to just those albums, right? And I had this very big thing where I would only move on to the next album once I understood all the lyrics. Um, remember, non-native English speaker, it's harder to like parse words on top of music, especially when, you know, Devin Townsend, like multiple layers and stuff like that. <laughs> sometimes his, his lyrics are utter nonsense, um, and like you don't have the syntax or the grammatical sense to kind of help you um, understand words that you might not be hearing as clearly. You're like, um, I will but, be like the mountain. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, much appreciated. Um, but, but of course, it wasn't just Devin. And then, of course, you can bring in abrasive vocals like rolling or gutturals and so on, and it becomes impossible. But I used to, the point is that I used to dive into each album. Now, with books, it's kind of the opposite because when I was a teenager, I would read with like the voracious appetite of a teenager. <clears throat> it helped that I was also reading, I mean, not bad books per se, right? But not exactly literary <laughs> masterpieces, right? I was reading <clears throat> Wheel of Time, 
And yeah, those books a are lot bad. Of... <laughs> those books are bad. Uh, let's well, not get the first three. That. The first, yeah, yeah, exactly. The I first three. And then I think there's also a few rays of light where Robert Jordan kind of like stepped out of the format. And like book seven and eight, they have some interesting experimentation. But yeah, overall, I agreed with you that they're not <laughs> great. I was also reading other things, to be clear. But um, yeah, l- lots of pages, but not exactly tough prose. But even tougher things, you know, I had a lot of time, as teenagers tend to do, and I was just reading immensely. And, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I don't read a lot today, which is not true, but I definitely read slower. And we, and we spoke about the, the art of reading slower and, uh, you know, really finding the pace that fits the book. Uh, like kind of like wrapping this all back into the question of categorization, I very much identify with what you said, well, the consumption of the work became primary and the enjoyment of the work, which is the aesthetic experience, became secondary. Uh, So I was kind of like, for example, I stopped reading franchises. I stopped reading like long series of books because I was like, oh, I can't wait to get back or to move forward to the next thing. Like I don't have time to read this long fantasy book because there's so many other things piling on my shelf and so on. And today, I, so my approach hasn't been to like completely discard um, the list and kind of go willy-nilly because to be honest with you, my anxiety disorder won't allow me to do that. It's just when there's not a list, I feel like all books are on my list. As, and- as someone who has autism-driven OCD, um, that's why yeah. I like to play video games that have a percentage completion meter um so i feel you i i externalize it elsewhere but i have not fully gotten rid of it either for sure so for me like the list helps me focus on what is actually the things that i want to read instead of feeling like the infinity of books is all on on my list but that's a really important point because i think this is a classic example of the and i'm not saying this as a criticism i don't think there should be less books lots of books is good right I think this is a classic case of like our modern way of life creating the problem and then creating the solution. And the solution is just as bad as the problem, right? Like the problem it creates is the availability of literature that we have to us. Not to, you know, go overboard as people like to do about the pre-19th century world where no one read anything and everybody was living in complete ignorance and they didn't know how the world works and yada, yada, yada which is just not true, right? It's just yeah. not the way things, mm-hmm. things work. But definitely um, the availability of the written world and texts was more limited, right? Uh, it was more local, um, and it was more expensive, and it was more limited. Um, by the way, that doesn't mean that there's this thing where, yeah, knives, for example, are really cheap today, but you go through them every six months, right? Because they're of really low quality. That is very much true for paper, I don't know if people know this, like the absolute worst quality of paper is the 19th century where that shit just fell apart and we have very little left. Um, But before that, there's actually higher quality paper than anything that we have today just because it's not mass produced, right? So, and I'm thinking of Sisyphean here. I don't know if you caught up on that, right? Like the coagula and all the objects just gathering infinitely, right? And we're all like... 
I literally yeah. keep it next to my desk at all times because as a writer, <laughs> this is one of the most fucking inspiring pieces of work that I've ever fucking oh, yeah. read. I really so need I'm to holding it right now. I, I, <laughs> I really need Toroshima to write more. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, so like we're drowning under this complete onslaught of, of the sheer excess of the a text that is available to us. And then the same people who cause the problem say, oh, well, don't worry, we have a solution. It's called Goodreads, right? Now you can um, control your intake, but when you, there's a small price, right? Goodreads is, is free, right? And you know what that means. That you're the product um, in, in that uh, nice little cliche. So the, um, the price is that you can't just control your intake for yourself. You have to tell us how you control it. You have to help us understand how an imagined consumer who is like you, right, when stripped away of your personality and all that's left is your age, your gender, your sexual orientation, your location, your political agenda, and so on. Um, tell us what you might um, categorize this as so that we can better sell it to the next person down the line. Um Back in that episode where I was railing against identity politics, I mentioned that I'm aware that none of these ideas are new. I'm basically just doing Foucault, right? But that's exactly <laughs> the application of Foucault's uh, theory and philosophy, and that's why it's so useful. Um, the data, the reporting, the confession, because of course it's self-reporting, right, is what's of value to these centers of power, right? They don't want to tell you what to buy. They want you to tell them what to sell. It's so the whole purpose that, of the, yeah. the YouTube survey is the reason why what you watch on Netflix is tracked. Um, like, oh, it's, but, but, it, it's the fundaments of the digital surveillance age. Yeah, so yeah, I, like I quite literally. Yeah, for sure. I wanted to say something very important here. Stop answering surveys. Yeah. Like, you understand that the company should pay you to take those surveys? Like you're providing them with a product for free. They Why even used you to. Yeah, they used to. 100. percent It, yeah, it they used, used to be to... at at like shopping malls or things like that. There'd be a little room where you could do surveys, and they'd be intermittent. But they'd be think that's where they'd get things like um, audience responses to early films or trailers or things like that. And they would yep. pay you. They would pay you. Sometimes just in vouchers. Sometimes in money. But they would pay you. Yeah, because you're providing them with a service. And nowadays, like. You just give it out for free. Why would you give fucking Alphabet free data on you? They already have all your data. <laughs> Why would you go one step further and help them like tag it, basically, which is what they use these surveys for? Um, but spinning this all back, I think the real challenge is the classic uh, saying, uh, kill the cop inside your head. And mm -hmm. I had a tweet like a few months ago where I said, kill the spreadsheet inside your head. And that's exactly what I meant because I'm not on Goodreads. I moved off of um, Kindle. By the way, that's really funny that people are like, I, I get why that's also why I bought like a Kobo uh, e-reader because it's like not Amazon, but like Kobo is owned by, uh, how do you pronounce it? Ra Ra Raukten? Or I don't know how the Japanese pronounce it. Um, Raukten. Rakuten, sorry. My bad. Um, that That's like Japan's Amazon. I'd like... It's a it's a multi billion dollar corporation. They have twenty thousand employees. So like, okay, great. Like now a different 
giant corporation owns your your data and your reading and whatever. Yeah, they're, they're not as bad as Amazon because what is as bad as Amazon? Right? Like, <laughs> uh, you need like an eldritch entity of some sort. Um, but yeah, so um, I, I'm not on that. And I don't, you know, I don't like have a blog where I write as orderly about books as I do about music and so on. And even with heavy blog, I no longer do like the mass reviewing and tagging of things. So it could be easy to just say, I'm over it. But there's always my lists, right? There's always the final and first and most powerful categorization, which is what I do to myself. And that has not, and this is the hard part, not just as much impact as the external um, advertising of my categorization, but more impact. That is the engine. Like without my personal internal efforts to categorize what I read and to define myself as a science fiction fan or a fantasy fan or a person who reads these books or not others, that is the engine of this entire system. That's actually one of the fundaments of a really brilliant essay that Umberto Eco wrote, um, who to our, actually our crowd might be a little bit split down the middle to a certain crowd. Umberto Eco is known as like a pretty good novelist. Like you, you read his novels and they're not gonna, they're not going to blow your socks off in terms of originality, but they're really good. They, they, they're just good. But, um, where he was a pretty good novelist, he was a fucking brilliant semiotician and a literary theorist, um, like one of the best of the 20th century. Um, and he wrote an essay about, um, I forget what he called it, uh, not like the negative library, um, the anti-library, that's what it was, yeah. of deliberately having books or works that you do not read. Um, he framed it as as a much more deliberate act, but he meant it more in that sense of striking against that sense of, because you cited like as a science fiction fan, as a fantasy fan, we can extend this like as someone who loves cinema with a capital C. Um, you know, there are certain films that you need to have watched. There are certain directors that you need to be familiar with. And the real question, what if you just don't? Um, what if What if you don't play that game? And it's not that it's, a way to respond to like, yes, for levels of expertise, there are requirements. That's sort of the nature of expertise. Um, but not everything needs to be framed through the lens of being an artisan or an expert craftsman, in which case you need to do your tutelage. Like you are allowed to simply be a fan of cinema. And once you are simply a fan, you now don't have to go through the AFI top 100 list. You don't have to stay familiar with the rising tide of of young directors and things like that you're allowed to just like film um and that includes weird art house stuff but you know that it doesn't mean that now that you merely like film that you have to now abandon the world of art house cinema it just means that you don't have to tell yourself that i have to stay up to date with everything at all times i have to be on this is the other end of the um uh, especially the the, the Foucaultian um, sense of uh, self-confession, tie back to Eco there with Foucault's pendulum as well, um, of uh, the discursive social media end of being a fan of certain spaces where we almost now have a presumption of expertise 
and we must all engage in uh, art critical discourse as experts and not necessarily just as like people shooting the shit, um, which does a lot to poison really just liking stuff like just being a person. It's a, (laughs) it's a horrible prison that I I put myself in before as well. So I'm not, when I say this, I'm saying this almost more to me than to other people. Um, Yeah. Younger you. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I don't, there's no like bottom line. There's no like soundbite or bumper sticker or whatever. I, again, I still maintain my lists, right? I'm still categorizing and um, sorting for what I want to read. And yeah, I also make the mistake of like looking at a book and saying, this doesn't feel like something that I would read. And I, I want to kind of like go back to what I said about the tour.com stuff and make something clear because I realize now that when I've heard it, that I might sounded, I might have sounded like I was excluding it myself, but I would like to give you a textual meme or describe like a visual meme in text, which is the one where Garfield is pointing towards um, the figure of himself with the cross on. And he says, you are not immune to propaganda. I am not immune to propaganda. I am not immune to marketing techniques. I 100% the books that I buy, some of them I consciously buy because of their aesthetics. Some of them unconsciously. Like when I look at a book, you know, one of I don't have a lot of big bookstores here. One of the things that I'm expe- uh, anticipating, you know, moving to Providence is, is having access to a lot of books. But when I used to go to New York and I go to the Strand, right? Tens of thousands of books and I picked 10 of them. You think marketing didn't play a part in that? Like where the book was positioned, the cover, the blurbs, the font. Of course it did. I've and become I, obsessed I, with New York review of books, largely because they <laughs> grabbed me with that that aesthetic component where it's like I look yeah. at it and it felt like these people give a shit about literature. And they do, yeah, yeah. but but that's they, their marketing and cover design did exactly what it was intended to. Yeah, and, and that's exactly the thing. You cannot decouple these concepts and that now we're moving past the cliche of doing Foucault to actual Foucault, right? Like people don't actually read him. They just know the sound bites. The important thing is that the discursive decentralized element of power cannot be separated from power. Like when we're describing all of these things, we're not necessarily describing things that are to be excised or done away with because that is an illusion. Like the pursuit of if we think about the cliche of how the U.S. imagines communist countries, right? Like, well, you only have one product and everybody dresses the same. Even if that were true, and it's not true, but even if it were, even in that society, there would be a way for power to prioritize the products that it wants its citizens to buy. Um, Discourse would um, frown upon certain aesthetics. Like, even in in closed communities like nuns and monks, there are politics of dress codes. And certain individuals dress in different ways than others within the same orders, right? So like even in the most ascetic um, Spartan communities that you can imagine where things are supposedly flattened to be the same, the indelible quality of product, of sorry, of power as a discerning mechanism which is the panopticon, the eye, the observer, dividing things into categories, remains. It cannot be removed. It is inherent to 
how power works. So when this we criticize, fact, literally, yeah, why monastic orders function the way they do, like the goal, oh, yeah. the goal of them to flatten is because of the acknowledgement of that fact. Like you don't get things like, and this is a, a through line that connects like Benedictine monks, um, imams, and like Buddhist monks uh, is this thought of you go to a monastery because you have witnessed the fact that the categorization of things leads to the difference of things and you are seeking to return to the unity of things. You don't do that unless you acknowledge this is already happening. And most monks in a monastery, to think in Buddhist terms, are not going in there going, I am already the Buddha. I already see past difference. Uh, they're going there because they don't. Like the Buddha yeah. doesn't need to go to a monastery. Um, and so it's <laughs> like, these are, these are not only this, this touches on sort of the inherency of a lot of the arguments that Foucault makes. These aren't even like ancillary facts that reemerge in the monastery. The monastery exists because of these things. Yeah, 100%. And so when we call out marketing, when we call out these things, we're doing it for criticism's sake, right? Like how does this interact? How, what does it do to you? What kinds, of, what kinds of texts does it emphasize and why? Not because those texts are bad or because that marketing needs to be done away with, but because when it's invisible, when it's in the background, when it's naturalized, just like capitalism would like to do to itself, when it's real, realist, like we are not doing something special, we're not doing something synthetic, we are simply, this is the way things are, that's when these mechanisms are at their most insidious and to be clear what is insidious about them the fact that they limit individuals from expressing themselves and experiencing freedom because then the teenager who wants to read different books than the fashion of ya tells them to read cannot do it or it's harder for them to do so because when they go to school and they take out their book then the cover is wrong and people might give them looks or they might just not have anybody to talk to about it. Like they might not get bullied or anything, but they'll just have no space in which to have a conversation. Whereas the popular YA series will have that like forums and friends and so on. And that person is now less free because they have a desire. And now we're getting into Deleuze and Derrida and so on. They have a desire which they are. They cannot freely exercise, um, and, and we, that's what we, all of this is, right? We, we see a parallel of this also within um, Nietzsche as both the proto-Marxist Nietzsche and the proto-postmodernist Nietzsche. Um, we've talked a bit. There's a lot of angles to Nietzsche because that man was not fucking consistent. Um, but <laughs> um, he brings this up in uh, "Thus Spoke Zarathustra," where Zarathustra, the sort of it's a prose, poetic, philosophical novel. It's either the worst novel you've ever read or the weirdest philosophy text you've ever read. I fucking love it. <laughs> That's a description of a book I like. Um, but um, Zarathustra, the figure, so literally Zoroaster, because that's just another name for Zoroaster from Zoroastrianism, um, goes off to be an ascetic because he's thinking all of these things about how I need to, to walk away and see no longer the difference of life and the difference of modes of being and all that kind of stuff. And one of the big turns in near the end of the first act of the book is he realizes this is an impossibility. 
um, because of that question of the inherency of things and calls out in a certain way a real trend within philosophical work um, before critical theory emerged, which was this very misanthropic um, absenteeist view that like the goal of philosophy was to scorn the world as it is and to improve its character because it was somehow fallen and that you needed to walk away from the world, gain wisdom, and then come back and deliver it like a sermon on the Mount. This is also one of the fundamental criticisms of, uh, that, that we here hold of things like most Greek philosophy um, that like necessary for the fundamental development of philosophy, especially in the West, but you need to be very careful returning to it in the modern day because it's, it's almost always stained by that sense of the world as it is and the people of the world are inherently dirty. And my job as the philosopher is to be the wise one lifting them up. And something critical theory sort of desnared is things that Derrida and Foucault were bringing up, which is that like we ourselves are not free from these machinations. We can extend the thought of Marx of uh, dialectical materialism and say that, no, not even the philosopher is free from this stuff. Duh. Very obvious. Um, yeah. But then the other part of like what remains then is enmeshment within the world, which is sort of, um, this is, this is where Nietzsche gets challenged sometimes in the modern day or sometimes embraced. This is where the question mark is, is like, cause it's the question of like, when you know that your digital freedom is fully compromised, there is no way to get like to become info secure or digitally secure in the modern day. There just isn't a lot of those things. Even when we talk about like encrypted communications and stuff, this is all a sham. This is basically a big scam. It doesn't really work, not for anything serious. Um, do you embrace that fact and sort of dive deep into... Because there's also a question of like, does this mean that you should become careless or carefree? And is there a difference between being carefree and careless? Um Granted, those are just sort of, aren't those just the questions of the 21st century? Yeah. Like, I, I don't have the fucking answers to those. Exactly. But, so, but that question of, like, what does enmeshment mean when you know that you can't escape? That sort of fundamental thing from, from Foucault about the panopticon. The panopticon solution isn't, like, these dumbass responses to who walked away from, uh, those who walked away from Amelis. Which, by the way, don't respond to that story. It's a you're supposed to think about it, not respond to it. <laughs> yeah. It's a Zen Cohen, you fucking yeah. moron. You don't answer a Zen Cohen. But yeah, but you could. You, but you're an idiot if you do. Yeah, you're doing it wrong. You can't escape yeah. the Panopticon. You're not bringing this up as sort of a rhetorical device. You're bringing this up as like I'm trying to tell you something fundamental. There is no way to get away from being observed, whether being observed by the self or being observed by others, um, or being observed by the world, by laws of physics, by like you can't escape the contextualizing web. That's also sort of the through line from the Panopticon to dialectical materialism and to rhizomatic uh, flows and lose like so i want to stop you because this leads into the book really really well right? oh yeah we're and dancing we around like... mold nature <laughs> exactly so we, we want to transition to that but before that we gotta do music so i'm going to hit you in the face with a digital sledgehammer um by putting on a track by 
Soul Keeper. Soul Keeper is this absolutely mad and incredibly heavy group that do like metalcore, but with a lot of glitch and um, electronic. Holy shit, I am looking at the cover of their newest record. Yeah. Yeah. So this record is called Holy Design, and the cover art looks like a computer having an aneurysm or something like that, like tortured pixels and colors and so on. Um, these guys are from Minnesota. They've been around for a while. They've been making albums for like seven or eight years, but Holy Design has really kind of um, blown up, and for good reason. It is absolutely aggressive, face-melting, incredibly um, forceful and well-written breakdowns and so on. Um, we're going to play Time Out of Mind, which is the second track. I have never done this before, but I'm going to give you a volume warning. If you're listening, <laughs> to, this, if you're listening to this in high volume, I suggest you turn it down because this track literally opens with like a glitchy guitar riff that will just blow your ears off. Um, but if you're looking for that, if you're looking for like heavy, aggressive music that is still well made and it's not metalcore in the sense of just the same fucking chords and the same breakdowns and callouts, none of the machismo uh, culture, none of that stuff, but instead like really interesting and experimental take on heavy music, then this album is for you. Can I throw uh, out a thing before we press play on that? And it's just yeah, a quick please. thought about how I really... During the early rise of the the resurgence of new metal, I was really incredulous of it because a lot of a lot of the things we were seeing were people um, defending bands that I don't think anyone was really attacking. Like when we talk about new metal being having a lot of shit bands during its uh, heyday, and people weren't really talking about Corn. Corn is very well respected. They were absolutely not talking about Slipknot, who are like they make a bajillion dollars every time, um, yeah. and everyone likes Iowa. That record's stupid great. No one was talking about System of a Down. They're beloved by literally everyone. Like, they're, they're what we meant were more like Spine Shank or Pitch Shifter <laughs> bands that had, like, if, if, you're, um, if you were there, you heard them. Um, and there's a reason why if you weren't there, you don't know the names. Um, so I was very incredulous of it. And a lot of, we saw a bunch of, like, really whack um, rhetorical devices where it's like, oh, you just don't, like music of the urban working class and it's like no i don't like an aesthetic of it you can name any number of other art forms that come from urban spaces come from working spaces like we we did this like very um bad critical theory tie of like the aesthetic of a thing is inherent of its politics and origin it was yeah. very annoying anyway i'm glad that bands seemed deliberately to want to prove people like me wrong and we get stuff like <laughs> this now which clearly is drawing for i mean we have this we have uh tala who are stupid fucking good i was yeah. very scared because i'm like banned from uh the the son of mike portnoy i got burned once by that um <laughs> not a big fan of once. his first band um but jesus christ Tala's good um and a, yeah, and a bunch of other bands it. Yeah, we have whatever Gary Brands is doing today. Um, yeah, Memorage, Memorage is and, so stupid good. Yeah, stupid of good. Like, of, of bands like this, like Soul Keeper, just looking at previous records and looking at how things are tagged and whatnot and hearing your description. Um, 
this feeling of bands really grabbing on to what were the exciting avant-garde and progressive chunks of new metal, as well as, you know, the, the normal bits of like, almost that feeling of like, what if we could sound like Limp Bizkit and West Borland solo stuff at the same time? <laughs> that one's from a new metal heads. West Borland. Yeah. Go to the guitar. Yeah. Damn you good. He's anyway, so that's it. Good, man. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I agree with you 100%. New metal is good. Actually, you just need to do it well, just like every other single genre yeah. in existence. And this is a great example of it. So this is Soul Keeper with Time Out of Mind. Now, you will pick up your brain off the floor after Soul Keeper um, blew it out of your ears. And you're going to stick it back in and then we're going to blow it again. Um, because we are going to be talking about The Marigold by Andrew F. Sullivan. Shout out to our boy. He's not our boy. We hang out in like, 
you know, similar Twitter and Discord spaces. Uh, full disclosure, I don't know if you care. We're not really objective and we've never pretended to be. Um, Andrew is from Ontario. Um, and The Marigold, not his debut novel, right? But I think it's the only full length he's released. He's written horror. Um, he's, oh, that's forthcoming. So maybe this is technically yeah. the first one. I um, think this is his first like major release. I think similar to... yeah. Similar to musicians, the more you get plugged into the writing space, the more that you realize that someone's debut is not really their debut. Like I recently oh, yeah. for a book club finally read Ocean Vuong's debut novel, On Earth We're Briefly mm-hmm. Gorgeous. Adore his poetry, have for years and years and years. Thankfully, I was I was plugged into writing spaces during his come up when he was writing like chapbooks and stuff. But so like by the time he debuted, scare quotes, he was already an incredibly established writer even by the time yeah. he wrote his scare quote debut volume of poetry night sky with exit wounds fucking brilliant by the way that is the most like insanely brilliant like collection of poetry i've read from the 21st century it's insanely good um he he was already kind of like that came out on copper canyon which is a very big press for poetry so the fact that his debut came out there he was already kind of known in the world and he got fast-tracked for the t.s Eliot award because again people were like it was a coronation moment so yes there's a lot of times where someone's like this is also important to think about you hear this in the music world a lot where you have your entire life to write your debut record and you have two years to write the follow-up um same is kind of true in the literary world like you you can fine-tune something for a long time that's a side note um, that is not really important here. So I find it I find it thrilling that we picked the Marigold. This is a fun I've told Andrew this personally. So I've known Andrew for a couple of years through similar spaces because we occupy similar writing spaces and we've traded notes, we've traded like manuscript stuff, we've commented on each other's stuff. Not in a like we are best friends way, but just as as peers who like and respect each other's work a great deal. I knew the Marigold was coming out and I didn't pitch it because I felt like I can't, I can't just go, yo, my boy's got a book coming out. Can we like rep my boy? It was <laughs> Gareth who did, who does not share these spaces, who was like, this book looks great. Should we do it? I keep my mouth shut. Eden responds <laughs> and Eden hadn't yet joined spaces with Andrew yet was like, that looks great. This looks way up our alley. It's like, it's clearly has this Marxist fundament to it but it has the weird speculative fiction stuff it plays with horror and sci-fi in certain ways there's the inherent delusionness of of mold you can't really get away from it there but also the object-oriented ontology stuff that of wait wait wait, and, wait 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 hold on hold on hold on let's introduce the book i just the minute that they both were like we're in i'm like we gotta do it and then i, I threw a note out yeah. to andrew i was like i i I'm just thrilled as someone who's a big fan of Andrews as like a friend that legitimately this didn't get put in due to nepotism. But the minute <laughs> I threw out, nah, he's also my boy. It was like hundred percent lock. This you is like the don't perfect. Be- don't believe Langdon. We get paid like hundreds of dollars per episode. We do. Uh, we there, are was, there was, in. there was a point where is it, this happened to me before where like, um, uh, Marie from, from Putrescene, I'm, I'm, very very tight with trevor from putrescene we were very very good friends um so i know about the work a lot so normally i try to avoid reviewing work from from people that i know because there's no way that someone can trust me um legitimately 
And for one of my for one of my columns, I wind up reviewing this like really weird Voivodian, really sick prog metal record that I'd never heard of from this independent band called Mesa or Mesa. And after it got published, Trevor sent me a message going, I thought you didn't review friends' bands. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, that's that's Marie's project. That's a that's her solo side project. And I was like, I honestly didn't know. I just heard Voivod riffs and I was like, yo. <laughs> okay, I don't know. So I love when that shit happens. Rolling back to the Marigold. Um, the Marigold is a book about Toronto. Um, I feel like, I don't know, maybe people who listen to this podcast know more about Toronto. Canada has this cloaking field called the United States of America. That's right. Well, Every single thing that's wrong with Canada kind of flies under the radar because they're next to the United States of America. They can't um, even oppress their uh, native people as good as we do. I hate, yeah. I hate that that's true. I hate what I just said. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So Toronto is, and Vancouver, by the way, um, is one of those places that if you want to see capitalism and specifically real estate capitalism at its most nakedly aggressive, oppressive, and brutal. Those are one of the, like you could go to San Francisco and you could go to Seattle and all these like hyper um, stratified cities in the US, but you could also from Seattle, just take like a two hour drive, go to Vancouver, or if you're on the other coast, go to Toronto and really see some heinous, heinous shit. And this book is very much about that shit. Um, the main storyline is that um, a mysterious sort of sludge, mold, fungus, some sort of something in those spaces has been infecting, uh, bubbling, um, incubating in the basements, parking garages, sewers, and so on of Toronto for a while now. And all of the powers that be have tried to kind of literally keep um, a lid on it but now uh, things are overflowing and uh, the entire city is basically colonized by this mold that's the non-spoiler stuff so if you want to read this book and you haven't and you care about spoilers you shouldn't but that's your prerogative then you can turn off the podcast here and come back to it later um, why? why? what, what am I going to get into uh, spoiler territory the most interesting thing for me about this book except for the like we always say the line by line writing and the pose is really really good and there are some very clever turns of language in this book but what i found most compelling um and interesting is the uh, sullivan's depiction of the interplay between the powers that be specifically the non-existent municipal authorities but they're always in the background the um old money of real estate capital that is trying to reinvent itself and figure out new ways to exploit people in the modern era and the tech companies. So now I have to do a side note. In the book, uh, the company that totally isn't Google but is, is Google is called Threshold. Now, why do we know that it's Google? Because in the Marigold, Threshold has bought Toronto's um, Quay side basically it's waterfront property and has turned it into 
a smart neighborhood where everything is quantified, tracked, and analyzed. Google literally wanted to do that in a sense that it already had the city's approval to do so. Um, Google or Alphabet, whatever, created a company called, um, oh, it is Google actually, the subsidiaries of Google directly, called Sidewalk Labs. Sidewalk Labs, which still exists, is Google's quote-unquote smart city um, department. They, they still exist. They have a bunch of completely awful um, sub-products. They all have like catchy names, of course, um, like Vault Silver, which is supposed to work with electricity networks, and Nico, which is the neighborhood investment company that allows local residents to make small long-term real estate investments. I'm reading off the like on marketing drivel, right? Um, but of course, uh, stuff like Replica, which is uh, an AI-powered data platform to help municipal um, organizations like collect data and analyze it, and tools to help help developers and so on. Um, they pitched Sidewalk Toronto in 2016, and then in 2017, they announced plans to develop Quayside, a 12-acre neighborhood in Toronto, which is... Um, exactly the waterfront neighborhood that um, Sullivan describes, except in the real life, in our reality, um, there was lashback at the data policies and what they wanted to collect, which is everything. Everything. Um, every single thing. Um, there was, there was uh, um, negative um, feedback and so on. And then COVID was the final nail that kind of killed this um, project. And it didn't happen. But it was already planned. They had all the plans. They had all the tech. They were going to do it. They had the money. They had the authorizations. And by the way, um, uh, Sidewalk Labs today operates an innovation center in Vancouver. Um, Summerlin, which is one of Las Vegas's like uh, m- middle-class uh, neighborhoods. And it also does things in Miami and San Francisco. So, yeah, very much um, still a thing. And a corporation that's still going. And what Sullivan captures really well in the Marigold, b- besides a lot of other things, but that was my chief um, interesting uh, point, is that every single one of these players have their own perspective on the wet. The wet is this fungus sludge thing, which, by the way, now that we're in spoiler territory, is the accumulated biological mass of all the bodies that get buried in order to build uh, towels. Apartment towels, right? We'll get into that in a sec. They all want different things. Threshold wants to understand this thing, right? It's the panopticon. It wants to analyze it and collect data and categorize it and make sense of it. The old landed um, nobility, I guess you would call them, aristocratic class, they see a profit uh, margin, right? They see a weapon they can sell or or um, it's even hinted that the main villain, Stanley Marigold, wants to use it to destroy cities so that he could rebuild them for profit. And then the city, um, which sends one of the protagonists of the book, uh, Kathy and Jasmine, um, they want to contain it. Right? They want to uh, cure it. They want to make it disappear because it's a public health hazard. But even though they all have different interests, it all boils down to the same thing, which is they insist on seeing the wet as one thing, right? They insist on an explanation, which goes back, of course, to our intro. They want to pare it down. They want to categorize it. They want to put it into boxes, sometimes literally. And every single time, what the wet does 
because it's rhizomatic is spread, right? You try to put me in one room, I will spread to 20. You try to put me in 20 rooms, I will go back to spreading to three. And there will never be a logic that you could follow. And that's what leads to their downfall. By the way, book has a bad ending, if you care about that. Like, stuff is bad for all the characters because they all insist on figuring it out. And the wet, and of course, by association, all of the deficiencies, um, blood prices, cruelties, and so on of cities is indefinable. This book wound up being... Uh, so again, my, my story in the beginning wasn't... I didn't bring that up... Uh, either because I was uh, because just because it's relevant. I actually have been having a very bad mold day. Um, I wound up telling this to Andrew while he was writing this. I think it was during the tail end. I, I, I don't think that we were in contact when he was doing initial drafting or anything. But the what you brought up about the part that really sort of is the most affecting was precisely the part that um, felt like a knife in the heart for me. In, in meaning that in the positive sense of like he he, he did his job. Um, yeah. There have been a lot of really great reviews of this book that seem, thank God, to accurately parse that this is a Marxist horror novel. Um, that this is like his his political leanings are not hidden. He doesn't he doesn't go out and just start like quoting um, from like Mao or something about landlords in the middle of it. Like he's not that crass about it, but it's also very apparent, um, mostly in the the directness and frankness with which he names like where these terrors come from. Um, the the sort of fundamental reality of, and this is something that I think he does quite well in the um, the genre world, which I think a lot of a lot of people struggle with is it's clearly like half allegorical um, in the sense that it's not the wet isn't you're not supposed to read it and think of the wet as oh this this crazy science fiction thing you're supposed to think about real urban decay or the way that um, the way that landlords really don't give a fuck about the livability of their um, of, of their tenants we we were, um, I hate to say benefited, because uh, that's not the case, but this point is underscored with the recent uh, apartment collapse in Iowa that happened between our initial planned record date for this and this one where we're actually doing it, where tenants had been warning their landlord that they'd been seeing structural damage stemming from uh, like moisture in the walls and, and uh, like decay um, for quite some time. And the landlord kept pushing it off and off and off until the building spontaneously collapsed with tenants still inside it. The landlord yeah. then declared a planned demolition before they had found every body that had been in the building. And they had announced that they hadn't found every body. And then one day later announced the uh, planned demolition, which thank God was halted because we found people still alive in the building. Um, 
So obviously what happened with me with a bad apartment, um, what had happened was a pipe had burst in the bathroom in the apartment above mine, and it had soaked through the floor, uh, mostly in the, uh, uh, the insulation, uh, which caused it to mold and caused a, uh, a damp spot, um, that clearly wasn't just water damage due to the coloration of it to form literally above my bed. And this is forming during what my, uh, what my spouse has referred to as my gothic novel period, where I lived with um, two roommates who were addicted to Oxycontin and one of them would beat the living fuck out of the other one. Um, not shaming them for the addiction. That's that's a real shit thing. I am definitely shaming the one who would beat the shit out of his girlfriend in the house. That's just fucked up. Um, uh, dealing with intense poverty, stuff like that. Um, this is a very grim period. And then in the midst of this insane level of stress, this like stain, the shape of my body starts appearing over my bed, um, directly over my bed. Uh, and when I, I alerted the landlord about it over and over, when they finally cut open the ceiling or when they finally checked it, they realized they needed to cut open the ceiling and drain the fluid using a sluice they made from taped together garbage bags going into a 10 gallon. I, I remember, I remember those pictures and they fucking haunt me and I wasn't even there. Yeah. They yeah. drain it into a 10 gallon paint bucket. It was opaque and gray and they put an industrial fan in my room and handed me a bottle of anti mold spray and told me that I should spray it into the fan, uh, intermittently in order to keep the mold from spreading from the water into the apartment um, and, uh, they, uh, notably, um, that didn't really work. I now have permanent lung damage from the mold and fun fact, they didn't even reduce my rent for one month because of this. It, for whatever reason they built into, uh, or not for whatever reason, for deliberate reason, they built into the clauses of the lease agreement stuff about like, um, foregoing liability for certain things. Um, that like legally you can't do that in certain circumstances, but it's like they were able to do the standard thing that we rail against of, um, this has been a current pet project of mine, the way that a lot of philosophy winds up being recoded legalism, where it's just the rhetorical game of, well, technically it falls under this category. And so then technically this action can be excused by this. And then that means that all that kind of causal chain bullshit that basically they linked together enough stuff that I wasn't able to um, sue them or get reduced rent, but I do have permanent lung damage. Um, so to say that this book struck me deep, um, is, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I can't possibly, um, overstate, uh, like they just wouldn't be possible. Um, like, and I, I'm thankful that I mentioned this to him as well. My gratitude at like naming this kind of stuff. And then my, my dual gratitude of um, looking at uh, critical pieces about the novel that thank God people are getting that. Like it's not being read as like, it's not that it's devoid of pulp elements. Cause that's another like fine balancing point that this, this book carries quite well. Like, it could read very easily as a screed against landlords. And that, that element is in there. Like, it's not missing. But 
it, he does know how to code switch over to feeling like a sci-fi novel or feeling like a horror novel. So that so, it is, it doesn't feel yeah. oppressive psychically the way that like just a chronicle of urban pain would. Thank so God. That's one of, one of the things I wanted to call out that the pacing of this book is so well put together because I agree with you that most of it is not oppressive, but the last 20% of it is oppressive as hell. So yes. he does this he does this really powerful thing of there's the main horror heavy uh, storyline, which is the story of Henrietta, right? Who is um, a teenager uh, living in one of Toronto's projects across from the pit of the Marigold 2, which is the next tower that the Marigold family plans to erect. Um, except they never do because the wet like overtakes uh, Toronto before they get the chance, partly because of shit that they've done. And um, her father had fallen into that pit when she was younger and disappeared. It's very clear that she has trauma and she's kind of like um, in denial. And when she goes down there, as kids do on a dare, one of her, well, acquaintances, which she perhaps imagines as a love interest, even though it's very clear that it's more out of like boredom and the risk of it than any like, you know, star-crossed romance or whatever, they go down there and he gets abducted by the wet. Um, and she delves deeper into the um, structure under the city together with her friends. By the way, Alma, her friend, is one of my favorite characters. She's a very, very good character. Um, and it has another one of my favorite characters, which is Cabeza. Uh, and Cabeza is like this, one of the bodies that hasn't been fully integrated into the wet and serves as kind of like their psychopomp, right? And this descent into, into hell. Um, and that is super horror heavy because Cabeza himself is like, he, his body is always morphing and people die there. They get subsumed by the wet. The wet kind of invades them and penetrates them. But what Sullivan does really, really cleverly is that those episodes are really far apart. Those chapters, sorry. Right? Like the studded by the other storylines where the wet is still in the background, right? It's still like a burbling threat rather than an active one. And it's really clever because it creates that tension where, like in horror films, where you know more than the character. And there's the moment where they're about to go into the basement where the clown killer is or whatever, and you scream at the screen, no, no, don't go in there because you know that the killer is in there. That's kind of like what happens with all of the other stories, except you're not trying to tell them not to go there. You're like, you fucking idiots. Like, you think you're still in control. You think things are reversible. You think this can be contained, but we already know how bad it is. Like, we already know that underneath the city, there's this whole, not cognizant, but like hungry, um, agency-filled, powerful, fungal, uh, collective that wants to eat all of you and you're still debating like you know which company should get the IP uh, on it and uh, how will the power struggle between these families go when you're like you know where it's going and Sullivan kind of like manages it extremely well until 20% from the end of the book everything merges right like all of these storylines merge and the wet then 
explodes. So kind of like the aesthetic meta literary rhythm fits in with the in-world rhythm in, in a really elegant way that is really well done. Um, the last thing I'll say about this is that I'm not a horror fan. I don't define myself as one. So if you're not a horror fan and maybe you don't want to read this book because it's horror, you should still give it a chance because of this careful management of the horror elements. Like they're not overbearing, as Langdon said. And then at the end, you're going to get that good dose of adrenaline and catharsis from the um, inevitable, gruesome ending to the book. I I am a horror fan. Me and Gareth are both, we, ooh, we love horror. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, this one, it's... It, it's really interesting to see this wave of um, trying to figure out how to put it. So obviously the term elevated horror is fucking stupid. That's just a stupid thing to say. Um, Cause that, that does the weird thing of like, um, like putting down the rest of a field that something's attempting to live within. But I think if we wanted to reclaim a sentiment of that, like this is a type of horror that is not premised on brutality. It's um except for a couple key moments which are very fucking brutal. Um <laughs> uh it's mostly premised on that very uh the same way that thrillers are technically a, a part of the horror world. They're based on uh this actually gets down to um we're going to do some Foucault again. We're going to do some genre classification. For something to be horror, <laughs> um it needs to provoke a horrified response we sometimes shape in our mind that what that means is it must have brutal gore or brutal um, levels of assault or things like that. And that's a very real and vital part. Like you can't have a real exploration of the horrific and strike out things like if, if horror can't include the horror of sexual violence, then we are striking out some of the most horrific things. And then by nature, making horror itself just a showcase of like, doing 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 a naughty rather than like really diving into those questions obviously you then get the question of how well is something executed to justify itself but yeah this is more on the other end of what about the natural structure or not natural the current i should say structures of um property ownership and these weird capitalized forms of uh, land development and intellectual property and stuff like that. How do they manifest in ways that create the real lived horror? It reminds me a lot of the, uh, the, the film of Candyman, not so much the short story, but the film, which focused on similar things, which uh, the question of where does the horror of the projects in America come from. And it doesn't come from blackness. It doesn't, it comes from things like poverty and institutional uh, lack of care that, that create the conditions for something very, very terrible to happen. Um, there's something very measured about that. It reminds me a hell of a lot of, uh, so there's a thing within Godzilla fandom that um, dope Godzilla films include <laughs> crazy kaiju, like Gueron, the knife-faced monster. Not kidding, he's real. He's my favorite one. His face is a knife. But yeah. good Godzilla films focus a bit more on 
the the kind of bureaucratic end like you see this in the first godzilla film a lot that most of it is this very real terror is bearing down on them and yet most of it is these bureaucratic nightmarish parsings of how they can or can't respond same with um shin godzilla Godzilla. Ano one which grabbed a lot from it he played it almost like a a manic workplace comedy kind of vibe but it was that same sentiment it also reminded me of um, Synecdoche, New York, right? <laughs> in many yeah. ways, like the the monitor film, the the monitor filled uh, rooms, and like the bureaucrats running around and, and so on. I don't know. It, it reminded me of that. And it's like obviously you don't want the right wing version of that, which is sort of like vigilante response. Um, we see this mitigated sometimes within certain anarchist spaces, and that that that's its own. That's its own political tension point of like when does ad hoc response become necessary versus measured sort of social responses. But the fundamental observation, that of these structures under a capital-driven democracy system, don't work. They simply don't work. Um, it's not that democracy or like like uh, like meetings can't address these problems it's that the way that they function under a capitalized system and the way that capital fundamentally undermines structures of democratic function i use so twice. whatever that like it, that part oh masterful 100 yeah, percent. and i think i want to tie it back to what you said about the projects and, and like where the violence comes from and one of the my favorite points about the book okay so the the premise of like the old blood and what they do is that whenever you build a tower, you have to sacrifice a corpse to it. You have to kill someone and plant them as a seed. It's kind of like the old sympathetic magic sort of thing where you're taking something from the elf, so you have to pay the price, right? Um, And they have like one of the best characters in the book is the gardener, which is like the killer that... um, Provide, provides them that service because of course they're not going to go and kill people themselves they outsource it right just like anything else that kind of like social class does um but one of the uh best parts of the book is when um the, the gardener makes the i think it's the gardener who makes the observation that even when he doesn't provide the seed people die for these towels um this is actually a huge problem in Israel today. Like, I don't know if people, how, how many people are aware of internal Israeli politics, but part of it, this is a very corrupt state. Um, there's like, uh, it's been going on for decades now, like our corruption uh, levels are off the roof, and, well, there's like a dog going crazy outside. Okay. That dog um, is posting. Yeah, he's posting, for sure. So, um, the levels of corruption here are off the roof, and uh, well, pardon the pun, and they mostly manifest in local municipal um, organizations, which is a classic place for corruption to manifest, right? Um, doesn't reach the headlines, and you can do shit in the dark. And workers here have been dying in droves because developers cut corners on safety regulations in construction sites, um, and they also hire people who are not certified and so on. But even if that's not the case, like think about the skyscrapers of New York. Think about all of these cities and the skyscrapers that you think about. Their price was literally 
paid for in blood. Like I would I don't know the amounts, but I would I would take the bet that more of those skyscrapers had someone die on site than those that didn't. Right? And now of course the um defense mechanism, the capitalist defense mechanism kicks in and says, well they chose to do it, right? It was their job. They were compensated. They got hazard pay and um, they they had a career and that was the risk of their career and uh, therefore the corporation is blameless, which is utter nonsense. First of all, assuming that they did get hazard pay, which is a big assumption, especially these days. Um, two, you cannot compare what they made to the profits that the developers take on this uh, property. Again, Profits are the unpaid wages of the working class, right? By definition, these developers have to exploit these workers who, again, paid the price in blood in order to drive a profit from these developments. Um, so it's literally impossible, because even if they didn't die, right? Like, think about, sorry to use this as an example, but Langdon and the damages that he um, that, that, that you sustained, right? Like, think about the damages that people sustain all the time from shoddy construction, stuff like that. You could not make a profit off of these buildings if people did not pay these prices, right? And yet, it is completely ignored, right? People who run development uh, firms are not seen as as bloodthirsty. They're, they're not, it's not one of the trades that you would define as uh, having blood on their hands, but but they absolutely do, right? They absolutely 100% do. And and what the book uh, then does, what, what Sullivan does, he, here we go, it's it's Derrida time, um, he says, or Lacan time, if you will, like when you take all of these facts, when you take all of this cruelty and you ignore it, you are setting yourself up for um, neurosis, uh, anxiety, panic, and all of these conditions that come from not um, talking about and recognizing the very real and brutal uh, prices of our day-to-day. And there will be retribution, right? Like Judgment Day, the reckoning is coming because it cannot go on like this. You cannot keep, on one hand, bearing every single problem that people have, bad housing and shitty landlords and high rent, you can't keep ignoring it. And on the other hand, destroy, control, and outprice all of their means for outlets, right? Because this book is also about the gig economy and like how everything has been parcelized, how people can't afford food yet. And if they can, it's uh, not yet, but uh, at this point, like, and if they can, it's shitty because it's delivered and made in crappy conditions and they can't afford entertainment and they can't, um, they get priced out of their own neighborhoods and so on. So on one end, you're like piling up these unspoken traumas and you're not treating people and allowing them to like get, restitution for the damages caused to them. But on the other hand, you're completely um, destroying the, the means that keep them sane in, in entertainment and company and, and so on. Something has to give. And in the book, it's the wet, right? It's like this fungus that kind of speaks the rage, right? And rises up to consume um, everyone in power. But in, in reality, it, it will be one thing or the other. It doesn't even have to be revolution. It can be which is what you alluded to, Langdon, crime. 
right? That bloodthirstiness comes back. I mean, we wind up seeing there is, uh, I have a complex set of feelings and relationships with the notion of eco-fascism. Now that's a fun sentence. It's probably got some people on edge and it's specifically yeah. because this depicts when leftists play with thoughts that air towards eco-fascism, I think this displays very well what is meant by that play, which is not so much the first thought isn't necessarily joy. It's that when humanity plays a dangerous game, and maybe it's only a subset of humanity, but it's still part of humanity, plays a very dangerous game, um, you get sometimes these very disastrous results. Like this <clears throat> mirrors with ecological response. Because that's another sort of unspoken vector here is that we presume both we as a general people, but also things like capitalists, building developers, um, tech types, they presume themselves above and beyond ecology. They, they still have that very narcissistic anthropocentric view that humanity somehow either is above or can be above or can control broader ecosystemic um, function that then generates specific problems here. Like the wet isn't something beloved by the marigold family like that it's important to note that it is a third spoke on this wheel of of power yeah um and that it is equally antagonistic obviously towards the marigolds as it is literally anything else that's alive um and it, it serves a kind of function uh that we see within gothic fiction a lot of the the nature or uh not the nature of nature as the uncanny like the ultimate uncanny is the world as it is beyond human perception and beyond like human surveillance. It's also the same thing that like Swamp Thing is built on, quite literally. Um, and it's it's less that now Andrew doesn't play it as like it's joyful when the the wet consumes uh, like all the building developers and all the tech types and just like brings everything to ruin. Cause obviously everyone else goes to ruin as well, but that's the kind of, this is, I think the difference between something being good and something being a relief because the relief comes from the fact that the suffering is now over once the wet goes big bong. Similarly, that's sort of the feeling when it comes to staring down the barrel of climate death, that if all of humanity goes, then holy shit, that's a hell of a price to pay, but at least the fuckers who did it will go too. And that's, I think, closer to the sense that underpins what for some people can tip into eco-fascism of like desiring these things. And that, that I think is where the real fascistic response of that comes in. But I think sometimes we're too quick to, we're too quick to say that feeling a sense of relief that the fuckers will finally get what's coming to them is equivalent to saying the cost of them getting that is worth it. Um, but which, which I, I don't think, think follows. Yeah. One of the things that I had to, I, I very much agree with what you said. And one of the things that I, struggled with when I was reading um, The Marigold is that if we look at it as, 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 a, as a leftist or, or a Marxist novel, the communality in the book is the wet, right? The wet yeah. speaks in 
us, owls, we, and so on. And, and actually, in the end, Stanley Marigold, again, spoilers, jumps off the building and says, mine. Right? Like he would rather die than join something that is communal. And that was very hard for me to square because the wet is not good. It's not the good communality. There's no like hive mind where people prosper. It's literally like a, sorry if I'm being graphic, like a slush of, of body parts and, and fungus and, and uh, lake water, right? Like, um, but I think that what Sullivan is trying to, um, not, not, not parody or satirize, but what, what it's a metaphor for is exactly what you mentioned. It's blackpilling, right? It's this like communality of death, right? Of saying, at yeah. least we're all fucked, right? At least we're all going to die. We might as well just give in. And what the characters in the book fail to find, and again, every single character has a bad end. They all get fucked. Um, what they fail to find is any sort of communality or connection amongst themselves. Like, think about the characters. Henrietta loses Alma underground. Kathy loses Jasmine to herself, but to the wet. Um, Stanley didn't have anyone, and he loses everyone. Like, he couldn't connect with Sydney, his, his wife. He couldn't connect with his lovers. He just, like, hates everyone, and everybody hates him. And his father dies completely estranged, um, and so on. Um, and, we, and Soda loses his dad, and, and uh, his life probably... Uh, maybe he's the one that survives. It's 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 quite unclear near the end, though. But like all connections fail. And at the end of the day, that's a lot of what the marigold is about, right? Like the current world that we live in is lonely. It atomizes us, right? It breaks us into individuals. It isolates us. It gives us all the comforts that we need as long as we stay inside, and it actively works to um, pit us against each other. And in response, a lot of the connection that people feel and generate for themselves are connections of anger, hate, envy, fear, and so on. And what Sullivan is saying is, you're right, these are connections. And, and I understand why you would go towards them. Like, he has a lot of empathy for the characters in the book that get lost to the wet. Right? They're not seen as stupid. Um, they're seen as responding to a very understandable lack right what he's saying is out of that there is no new world right there's nothing to build from the wet the wet only takes the wet only destroys the wet only dissolves actually the creatures that benefit from the wet are the raccoons right the, the raccoons um kind of like haunt the book they show up in all these different places and you think that it's just a coincidence or like a penchant of, of sullivan for raccoons but then at the end they are seen as the main beneficiaries as they move through the destroyed Toronto and um, feast, right? And they can do that because they are together. They are depicted near the end as like celebrating together. Now, I just want to exercise like a demon or like a ghost. Everything that I'm saying right now, fungi, cities collapsing, raccoons, should conjure another uh, podcast favorite author, Jeff Vandermeer. Right, um, not only the raccoons, uh, especially the raccoons, especially right. As, as, Man as loves famous, raccoons. He loves <laughs> raccoons. Um, it shouldn't conjure just born um, or dead astronauts that we've covered. It should also conjure earlier works, uh, City of Saints and Madmen. Please, for the love of God, read Vandermeer's earlier works. 
Ambergris, that's the Cities of Saints and Madmen, um, Shriek and Afterworld, and Finch have all been reprinted in an omnibus, so you don't have any excuse. Venice I have that omnibus on my shelf. It's beautiful, it's, and it looks exactly like the Area X omnibus, yeah. so it fits really well on the shelf. It's beautifully designed. Beautiful. Yes, Subterranean Press, and what's the other one he works with? MCD something, N, I think, whatever. Uh, they do really good work. Um, and, and Venice Underground, which also features... Uh, what if what if Dante's Inferno, but with giant fish and, and intelligent raccoons? Read that book. It's fucking glorious. Um, so Vandermeer, of course, uh, we actually asked Sullivan and Andrew whether he read Vandermeer, and he said he hasn't. But it's always like an author that, uh, oh, wait, did he say that he Vandermeer had not read his or, or something like that? There's no like overt connection. Um, but the comparisons are, of course, interesting and valid and what they uncover Vandermeer emphasizes I think the empathy and connection that can come from moving past the human moving past the limitations of ourselves while Sullivan in many ways doesn't allow us that option right the raccoon and the wet stay alien at the end of the marigold there is no human one character does not adapt we are all wiped away and i think it's because for sullivan was writing about very specific pains right your pain langdon right his pain is living in those areas like actual stories in real life that didn't have happy endings whereas vandermeer is trying to tackle the theory the the perspective, the, the the viewpoint that he wants us to have. So he has to give us an alternative, whereas Sullivan is merely, not merely in the sense that it's inferior, but in the sense that it's different, is describing very real suffering, which of course we know doesn't have those outs. So I just wanted to get that comparison out of the way because I think it, it's like obvious. I mean, when we see, so something I'm quite fond of is that has a troubling history is object-oriented ontology. I was uh, oh boy! I was in the the perfect moment of graduate and undergraduate study, doing <laughs> theory and stuff. Right as the stuff was breaking, Eden Eden was the same age as me and has a similar background. Was also yeah. re- you couldn't study philosophy and not respond to this stuff, even if you didn't like it. It was yeah. just it was so big and so fertile. It was gone zero. Yeah. And we, there were a bunch of great thinkers who hadn't gone insane yet. Like, um, fun fact, we've mentioned this on the podcast before. Did you know Nick Land used to be good? Yeah, he I, became pure evil, but that was I, like, that happened. I, I, that, I, I no longer trust my own memories, Langdon, because it seems so far-fetched that yeah. Nick Land was once good. <laughs> there was a point where people, Marxists, read Fanged Naumina and went, this has some really toothsome stuff. And then, of course, he took it into what if I became, like, a he's fascist. not even, yeah, he's like, he, he's one of those weirdo fascists. Like, he's an anti-capitalist fascist, which do exist. Yeah. So the whole thought that fascism is just the, le- the last stage of imperial capitalism isn't quite true. It's just normally that, and he's one of those. I mean, we're actually seeing a similar battle between, like, Ron DeSantis and Disney of, like, 
in Florida right now of the breakage of what it what happens when a pure capitalist function and a pure fascist function finally reach their breaking point where something is will where the fascist is willing to be opposed to the flows of capital to pursue fascism and vice versa. Um, which is, it would be a fascinating theoretical ground if it wasn't also fucking terrifying. Um, yeah. But, uh, but there, this, there this are, touches on... There are still good people left in that movement, I think. There um, are. And that's because yeah. the the big fertility of it was specifically interrogating what the, the non-troubling version of it is has become referred to as the non-human turn that's the way you can talk about it and not technically be including wacko fascists because it, it was specifically this kind of thought that we've been talking about between vandermeer and sullivan of we think so much in philosophical space about the world of the human and the world perceived by the human even the discussion of the panopticon by Foucault is tainted by the question of the human. It then had to kind of be liberated in its flows somewhat. I'm tipping my hand here by someone like Deleuze um, and the thinkers who came after him to go, no, this actually stretches far beyond just the human. Um, and in a way that verifies the thought of the panopticon like that, that shows that it's, it's not just a fundamental thing about how humans work. It's that, the web of contingency and attenuation, which is um, embodiment. Uh, speaking in kind of vague philosophical terms, because it's a it's a bigger thought than a specific one, um, you can't escape that. And so, of course, by nature, human culture would incorporate attenuation and contextualization as fundamental units of it. Like, that's that's part of embodiment not even being alive like you can't be a physical particle in the universe and not be contact uh conjoined in a dialectical sense with all of the rest of creation you you like physics doesn't work if that's the case because in order for that not to be the case something would have to be free in some literal way from um the relations of chemistry and physics of the world around it and because that can't be the case literally everything from fundamental matter up to conscious matter is by nature bound within this network of contextualization. And so the whole thought of the non-human turn and object-oriented ontology, when you're not a wacko fascist, is thinking very consciously about all the rest of the universe and all the rest of relations within the world that exist beyond just functionally interpersonal and intrapersonal relation. Um, and this frames, I think, the when you witness someone getting blackpilled, specifically even within the world of object-oriented ontology and the sort of turn towards eco-fascism that certain anarchists or uh, communists can take sometimes, this is coming almost more as when you think in these terms, you can understand it more compassionately. It is like the sigh of a dying man. That, like, they're not, if you could wind the clock back, they're not happy that they're being killed. They're not happy for the cancer. They're not happy for the bullet. You know, the thing that's causing them to perish does not delight them. But once they've accepted that that's going to happen, you have kind of two options. You have despair until the dying moment or relief. 
and that desire to turn towards relief as opposed to despair, I think, is at least an understandable one. It isn't necessarily a good one, but that's because, going back to the marigold, the wet consuming everything isn't good, but once you get to a certain threshold where you go, I can't stop this, then it becomes, do you torture yourself with hope and as such die in despair? Or do you accept it, which comes with its own troubling set? And this is, I get the real complex question that I think too often for political expediency's sake, we simplify as you should embrace it or you should fight back with hope. And I think both of those undercut the real human complexity, which is like it causes us pain because to get relief, we have to give up humanity. But keeping humanity doesn't, feels like in many cases, like it doesn't do anything but hurt us. And that that's a real tense question. That's that's a question with an incredible tension states within it. Like, yeah. you can't just resolve that with a flippant, like, well, no, you should, you should strive for, because this is where hope. we get, yeah. And it's like, what's the hope of someone huddling in their basement as they're about to have white phosphorus rain down on them. What, what is that doing? Yeah. Like they're well, well, just, uh, oh, just like all of us, you know, like with failing insulation and like flooding subway systems while the powers that be just march us to our death. Right. Like it's it, saying have hope is, is cruelty in its own right. Right. And it's funny because like the revolutionary spirit, this is where we get in certain leftist spaces that the revolutionary spirit doesn't require hope. It requires work. Yeah. And these are labor specifically, not work to a leftist is file these papers and move them (laughs) down the hall. Labor is like, we need to build something. Um, But there's then still the open-ended question of what is the labor? What is the labor that moves in, in the context of the Marigold in the novel? What could the people have done to have, because this is sort of the rock and a hard place sensation. You stop the Marigold family, but now you have the wet. If you stop the wet, the only real threat to the power structures of these developers is now gone. And their tyranny still continues. Now, it is the question. Now, he presents very clearly in a way that I think still underscores sort of the Marxist thing is that like, one tyranny replacing another tyranny isn't liberation. Um, And we see that false exchange presented a lot. But then the real question of what is it to be freed from tyranny? One thing that I found refreshing here was that uh, Mark Fisher would hate this book. He would view it as being ensnared (laughs) by capitalist realism because he can't even imagine a way out. But I think there's at least an honesty that he portrays very bluntly that I don't know the way out here. Yeah, for sure. Which you compare that to the number of books that we'd railed against before, where sort of the thing that is so galling in a certain way is the arrogance of like, if you just love and just have hope, then you're like, that's shut up. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Let's leave it though. Open-ended, just like the book, I feel. Um, please read the Marigold. Um, I didn't read any quotes this time around, but it's not for lack of beauty in the pose. We've already discussed this. Like, we don't cover books who are not like 
line-to-line good for the craft itself. But this one also has really important ideas. And honestly, there isn't a single person in, a person listening to this who cannot relate to the problems described in here. Unless there's like a millionaire listening to us for some reason, in which case, we're coming. <laughs> that's that's a joke, by the way. Uh, we are we're not... <laughs> it's fine. Uh, read the Marigold. Um, Andrew F. Sullivan. Fantastic book. I... I want to take the second music star as well, Langdon. I'm sorry, but but you like my choice, I think. Um, I really want to play something from Victory Over the Sun. Oh, and, yeah. Oh, I do love that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Victory Over the Sun is actually Vivian. Um, Vivian is a phenomenal, phenomenal black metal artist from Portland, Oregon. We had the distinct pleasure of premiering Nowhere her 2021 release on Heavy Blog, and we've been following her career for a long time now. She yeah. makes... Uh, Gareth put me on to her when we featured a track from a Tessitura of Transformation, which he had discovered yeah. on a whim, and just... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, on Nowhere and Tessitura and the previous releases, she made an oft-misunderstood uh, subgenre of black metal called microtonal black metal. If I get into what microtonal music is, Langdon will lose it and we'll get like a four-hour mathematics episode. Right, Langdon? Um, so let's not do the that. The shortest version, instead of having 12 notes per octave, what if you had more or less? And that's the yes. short version. You can now literally it's open ended because, and that's the fun of it. You can you can do as many or as little as you want, and what kinds of new music can you make with that? Yeah, uh, believe me, uh, Langdon wants to say a lot more, but uh, oh maybe god, I do. Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but actually, um, Vivian's or Victory Over the Sun's uh, latest release, "Dance You Monster to My Soft Song," I'd say moves her into the realms of avant-garde black metal. And yes, I know I'm splitting hairs, and I sound like a fucking douchebag who works for Vice or whatever, but it's not the same. This uh, um, album, I would say, is less oppressive um, and less condensed, um, but it is excruciatingly beautiful. It's still it, it really very pulls beautiful. that element that she on nowhere she had this turn towards these like very bright and open and beautiful yeah. um turns that seemed really yeah. presaged by by her collaboration with Helvetica Blanc, the the visual artist, that I'm so, so glad she continued here. Yeah. Like, so that I, feels like a marriage in heaven. Yeah, one of the one of the things that I love about um dance you monster is that helvetica blank is like one of my favorite visual artists working right now and this album was also produced by aki from Dreamwell and a constant knowledge of death um who is a friend of mine and one of the most i think talented musicians working in, in metal today um she also it's runs so new house studios good like yeah. everything that she produces in the studio is fucking killer. She's like so, the um the like the, the queer and proggy like scrams and black metal Colin Marston yeah. in a certain way. It's uh I, yeah. yeah I adore her and her work for sure. So I, that's what also what I wanted to say about Dance You Monster that it's the best sounding album of Vivian's career. I feel yes. like Aki was really able to bring the correct mix and master to the fold. Um, 
Aki also contributed violin on the third track, which is what we're going to play today, um, and additional guitars on that track. That track also has trumpet and uh, tenor saxophone, which is why I'm going to play you this track. Um, the track is The Gold of Having Nothing, which, again, correlates with a lot of the stuff that we spoke about. We're, we're good like that. Um, listen, if you've not heard this album, you have to listen to this album. Then you have to uh, support this album and, and potentially, if you can, purchase it. Uh, you know, Vivian is also uh, trans, so is Aki. So Helvetica Blank, I think, uh, identifies as non-binary, but anyway, they're gender non-conforming. These are important artists beyond their identity, as you know, uh, over here on the podcast, it's not just about the identity. They are literally making some of the groundbreaking um, and most beautiful art out there in multiple mediums. So putting your money towards these projects, if you can, is a really good idea, and I implore you to do so. Um, for now, here is The Gold of Having Nothing by Victory Over the Sun. As always, thank you so much for listening, and enjoy. Goodbye.